This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, I think we've been watching quite a lot of horror movies lately. So do you think maybe we can dial it back a little bit? Watch something a little more gentle? I feel like we really need to. I need some human contact. I need something cozy. I need something to watch where I'm not constantly on pins and needles worried about the the fate and physical safety of the people on screen. Well, I think you're in luck uh, because this week we are going to be reviewing A24's latest movie, the stop motion animated feature about a one inch tall shell named Marcel the Shell with shoes on. I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to getting Sarah's thoughts on my watch list pick for this week. That's another animated film, the 2010 French film, The Illusionist. Magic may not be literally real, but I like to think that movie magic is. I totally agree. And I think that we can discuss it a little bit more on episode 340 of Seeing and Believing. All right. So I'm making like a little documentary. Oh, it's like it's a like, movie, but nobody has any lines and nobody even knows what it is while they're making it. Mm. No. Mm. Tell me about what's life like. It's pretty much common knowledge that it takes at least 20 shells to have a community. My cousin fell asleep in a pocket, and that's why I don't like the saying everything comes out of the wash. Because sometimes it doesn't, or sometimes it does, and they're just like a completely different person. So it's actually only two of us now. Myself and my grandmother, Nana Connie. We like to watch 60 Minutes because Leslie Stahl is fearless. Nana, make the noise. Yes, we're here on episode 340 of Seeing and Believing. This is uh, you know, going to be a nice change of pace from the last couple of weeks where we've had some pretty tough sits to talk about. A little less air. horror, a little more gentle, I think. Yeah, yeah, the, the gentle animation episode. Um, I thought about trying to soften my voice and make it more soothing, but I think this is as good as it's going to get, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. NPR, watch out. I think think we can give them a run for their money. (laughs) Well, we'll see. We'll see. NPR producers, if you're listening, uh, give us a call. Um, So we are going to be talking about uh, two movies that do involve animation. They're both very gentle, very... Very nice movies. Um, The Illusionist from 2010 is going to be my watch list pick that's coming up in the second half of the show. But first, we're going to turn our attention to uh, the latest film from distributor A24, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Marcel, voiced by Jenny Slate, is an adorable one-inch tall shell who ekes out a colorful existence with his grandmother Connie and their pet lint, Alan. Once part of a sprawling group of shells, they now live alone after being mysteriously separated from the rest of their community. But when a documentary filmmaker discovers Marcel and Connie amongst the clutter of his Airbnb, the short film he posts online brings Marcel millions of passionate fans, as well as unprecedented dangers, and a new hope 
at maybe finding his long lost family. So Sarah, this movie is based on what essentially started out as a series of YouTube shorts. Mm -hmm. So it's got a pretty laid back mockumentary sort of vibe that's different from a lot of fiction features. And I think the... The big question for anybody who who sees this movie, but the one I'm going to pose to you at least, mm -hmm. is did that vibe work for you here? Because that's if it's not working, if the vibe's not working for you, I don't know if the movie will as well. So I'm curious to know your answer to that. It's a good question. And it's funny because I'm not actually a fan of the original shorts probably at all. Um, they just they never really clicked for me. So I went in a little bit apprehensive. I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about this movie. And it absolutely worked. Like, it clicked for me. Um, I think the trick with this is instead of being kind of a, a mock documentary like those shorts are, because it's kind of question and answer, like, here's a bunch of jokes about being a shell and being very small. The movie has kind of a backbone and a spine to it, mostly in, like, just a very soft and gentle story that's woven in a little bit. There's a little bit of... Um, conflict there's a there's a little bit more of a, a point to this movie rather than just a bunch of jokes strung together about how funny it would be if if shells had eyes and, and could talk and have feelings so um that's not the only reason why this movie worked for me but i think it helped structure like my approach towards it in a way that i wasn't expecting it to be because i was expecting it to take after those shorts um quite a bit so i'm curious to know did the shorts work for you and did the movie work for you? Uh, so uh, I don't have a whole lot of experience with the shorts. I think I saw one once upon a time. It was just like, oh, uh, not really for me. And so I didn't really follow up with any of the other ones. Mm -hmm. And it, it was surprising to see see this movie when, when it was first announced because it almost feels like the the original shorts almost feel like they're from a different era oh, yeah. in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And and. So for them to kind of come after what I would have considered their cultural moment, I, I was a little bit surprised. And I was interested to see how it would make that transition from YouTube shorts to feature length. And I'm I'm kind of almost the inverse of, of you in that, hmm. you know, while the, the, the format uh, on YouTube wasn't so much my thing, but I kind of got it. Hmm. I understood why it would be something that would click with a lot of people. This movie, I kind of sat and I, I felt like the what worked in five-minute chunks on YouTube didn't quite click for me at feature length. Hmm. And it's not so much that I disliked the movie. It's more just I kind of sat there and I was just like, I... I feel like this movie is just maybe not for me. You okay. Know, it's, it's, it's not my tempo, so to speak. Gotcha. Was it the pacing of the story? Was it the structure? Was it like the underlying conflict? Like what didn't work for you? I, I think it was, it was the attempt to, to lend it an, an overarching structure that maybe didn't work for me. Huh. The, the central conflict, such as it is, is that, uh, Marcel is, um, fearful of change once that you know that big traumatic change that he experienced early in life when he gets he and connie get separated from the rest of their family mm -hmm. and so now he's just a little bit timid about anything that'll sort of upset the the little world that he and connie have have built together um that's kind of the central conflict and the plot such as it is revolves around um 
the uh, their friend Dean, the documentary filmmaker, mm-hmm. getting them set up with a sixty minutes interview with Leslie Stahl, who is <laughs> uh, the hero, a hero to both uh, Marcel and Connie. And I think that you know, while it's it's diverting enough, and it is charming. This this is a charming movie. I don't know that it ever really progressed beyond being sort of like that's very that's very nice but it wasn't all that involving to me personally okay interesting because i feel like this movie might be my paddington too because i have your same attitude about the paddington movies okay um i find them charming i think the bear is very nice um but other than that like those movies don't work for me and for whatever reason i well no i do know the reasons and we'll get into them (laughs) um this one absolutely clicked. And I think part of it is that internalized like fear of change kind of being Marcel's internal conflict. But I think that there's also a, a really, truly lovely thread that runs through this movie of a character who is caring for an aging relative. Um, and I think that the movie handles that particular piece of the plot with, with pretty remarkable grace. Um, I was expecting it to be a little bit... Over the top isn't the right word, but maybe maybe hit you over the head with it, I think. And I think that it draws a nice portrait of a character who is afraid of change and knows that there is change coming on the horizon because he is an aging grandmother whose, whose memory isn't working quite right necessarily. Um, and she knows that there's that also inherent change coming. And, and Marcel is a child, essentially, like... He shouldn't have to be in this situation having to care alone for an aging relative. Um, but he's stuck in that situation anyway. And so I think there's this lovely push-pull of Nana Connie trying to sort of push him out of his shell, so to speak. Um, and then him being afraid to and not fully understanding that it's not just because he doesn't like change, but also because he's a little bit afraid to let go. And I think that the movie walks that tightrope quite beautifully. Um it, it felt very graceful to me, and it was, I don't know, it was sensitive, and it also didn't feel like it was trying to play it for, like, the ultimate melodrama or anything. Like, I could tell that it was playing on my emotions, and I welcomed that because it didn't feel like it was too over the top or trying too hard to do that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And I, th- I, th- I think that on balance, we probably agree that that central hook of Marcel caring for Connie and the the tension that Marcel feels between wanting to keep everything just the same for Connie mm-hmm. and wanting to keep everything just the same for for more selfish reasons mm-hmm. um is is compelling and I and I did like that quite a bit I think that the um the way that the decline that we see in in connie over the course of the film is is handled nicely it doesn't it's it never sensitive becomes, it yeah. never becomes mawkish i guess it doesn't feel like the um like the movie is trying to really push your buttons emotionally mm-hmm. um i think uh maybe where i kind of wish it it had been a little bit different is that i think the mockumentary conceit kind of for me made it to a point where it it maybe dialed it, it kept me too much at arm's length so that I kind of intellectually appreciated the grace with which it was handling this you know the story about the the decline of an aging relative mm. but it never really became 
much more than something I was able to appreciate intellectually. And mm. I'm kind of wondering if uh, a version of this film that ditched the the faux documentary conceit that was so central to the YouTube shorts mm-hmm. might have created that that missing spark that I was really hoping for and, and on balance didn't find so much. Oh, that's funny because I think the documentary piece was like the the exact level of emotional distance that I think I needed um, in order for this to not completely and utterly like either alienate me or wreck me completely emotionally. Um, I'm glad it doesn't do either of those things because I, again, I think it's walking that like sensitive tight tightrope of this is a sensitive story but we're not going to overplay it and then also we're going to kind of hold you at arm's length a little bit and I think it's kind of crucial that one of the two main one of the three main characters um, Dean the documentarian played by Dean Flesher Camp the director of the movie um, is also kind of involved in the story and also not and I think a lot of this movie is his the character of Dean learning to become a little bit more involved in the world again as well. There's a, there's a few interesting uh, interchanges between Marcel and Dean where Marcel is having a hard time doing a task because he's a one inch tall shell and he can't like light a candle or something like that. And he asks Dean for help. And Dean says like, I can't do that. I'm filming you. Like that would be unethical for me to interfere because I'm the guy doing the documentary. And Marcel kind of calls him out on that in an interesting way, because I I think it, it turns Marcel from just being the object of the documentary also into a subject where he's looking back at you and saying like, you're watching me for entertainment, but I'm also having a really hard time here. And I appreciated that interplay where Dean realizes like he also needs to be a participant in the story that he's telling as well. And I think that the movie's quite smart about that in a couple of other ways too. So when the shorts go viral for Marcel, like looking for his family, um, they get just this outpouring of attention on the internet and a ton of comments and likes and people start coming to his house because they're like this thing is famous and I want to have a a piece of that fame by just taking a selfie with it, essentially. And Marcel makes this comment of, oh, this isn't a community, it's an audience. And I think that that's also like, I I don't know, it, it felt like it was a smart look at participating in art and taking ownership of art versus wanting to I don't even fully know exactly how I want to say this here, but like, I I think that there is a difference in consuming art and then there is a difference in engaging in art and seeing the person who is making that art at the same time. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think the the movie is very intentional in the ways that it explores that. There's another point where Marcel sort of calls Dean out a little bit where Marcel uh, asks Dean a a somewhat personal question and Dean's like, "Uh, well, I'm not going to answer that because I'm I'm behind the camera. I'm not the subject of the documentary you are Mm -hmm. and marcel again quite astutely says oh i thought this was a relationship not just a project or or something to that effect Mm -hmm. and uh again you know dean sort of is kind of stuck without anything to say because marcel is 100 right that it's it's easy for uh somebody like like dean to very conveniently use the the excuse of art as a way to keep others at a distance mm-hmm. and to uh, kind of uh, protect himself when it suits him and and only be be vulnerable when it suits him. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also very much a film that I mean, if it has a a one word theme, it is community. It's about the importance of community, about how to have true community. It does require 
um, a person to give of him or of him or herself. Mm -hmm. And that's a contrast. Obviously we don't see in these, you know, uh, internet people who show up at the house one day just to take a, a selfie versus um, the the ways in which uh, Marcel and Connie and Dean all care for each other and kind of build up this this community and then uh, the deep hole and trauma uh, in Marcel's life that arose from the separation from the rest of their community and just how even though he's relatively okay with connie like they're 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 doing all right mm -hmm. there is definitely there's a lack in their life there's something there, there's a hole that they don't really belabor but it's there mm -hmm. and that again is just this film being pretty astute about the ways that community can be very important without necessarily being something that you know somebody is constantly obsessing over it's just it, it becomes something that grows into and becomes part of a life mm -hmm. yeah exactly and i think the movie is really smart about framing um that loss of community without these characters necessarily talking about it all the time like even just on a technical level um especially in the beginning i think there's a lot of focus on the surroundings and the settings and marcel's difficulties and even just getting around the house or gathering food um and there's this lovely shot after Marcel and Dean team up to try to find Marcel's family. They they go to the, the top of a mountain because Marcel is a child and thinks that if he goes to the top of the highest near place, maybe he'll be able to see like an, the next clue in his search. And they drive to the top of a mountain, which I assume is over Los Angeles, because I think that's where this movie is set. And Marcel is kind of like sitting in the middle of the dashboard of the car and the way the camera frames him, he's just about dead center, but very far off in a distance. The camera's kind of set a little bit far back in the car. And you can see the entire sky through the windshield. And then you can also see all of the little houses kind of dotting the mountains around them. And Marcel is like in perfect focus right in the center. And he looks just so small and so alone. And you can see all of these other houses just kind of alone, but also with him in the frame at a very deep distance. And I think that's the moment where I realized just how deep that hurt of being abandoned by his community was. Um, and I think the rest of the movie kind of does that like really smartly on it on a technical level too. Like there are moments where the frame just, feel, just feels a little bit off balance because there could be somebody else there in the background and there isn't. And you kind of feel that hurt without Marcel ever have to, having to say out loud, like, they're gone. Obviously, he tells Dean that they are gone. And there's some very cute, like, documentary-style reenactments of that. Um, but for the most part, I think the movie is smart enough to just let the actual frame do the talking as opposed to the characters doing the talking. And maybe that's where the shorts don't necessarily work for me, is all of it is just Marcel the Shell talking. And not really allowing you enough time or space to just sit and contemplate with the character, like in the space that he inhabits. So. Mm. I mean, you're, I like that we're getting into the technical aspects of the filmmaking, because I think that this, because it's a mockumentary, obviously it's very invested in not being super showy and, and, and very composed. Mm -hmm. um, when you watch a, doc, uh, a mockumentary, it, it obviously is trying to create the illusion that you're kind of watching something that's being shot on the fly that 
uh, where a shot setup is sort of chosen partly out of necessity rather than uh, out of like trying to obsessively arrange things within the frame. Mm -hmm. So the fact that this film largely succeeds at, at keeping that illusion going while also being very canny about how for, like you said, uh, Marcel's is situated in relation to other objects so that, uh, the sense of scale is still maintained that um, Marcel's smallness is you're still always aware of that, whether it's in close up or not, simply because of the rest of the objects that are chosen to be next to it. Like there might be a, you know, a, a pencil eraser mm-hmm. or uh, uh, like a, a quarter mm-hmm. or, or something that is just, it's not placed in a way that calls attention to itself. But if you're being an attentive viewer, you notice them and that, uh, kind of always keeps in the forefront of your mind just how how small Marcel is and how big the world around him is, and that in turn suggests just what a a big and almost hopeless endeavor it must seem to him to be to even hope that he could ever be reunited with the people who were taken from him. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I think crucially, the movie is 100% earnest about the story that it's telling as well. I didn't feel like... It's a it's a mockumentary sort of, but it's not really a mockumentary in that it's mocking the characters or mocking like even just the act of of documenting something. I think that this is a movie that cares very deeply about making documentary movies and also cares very deeply about drawing out those relationships, but it doesn't feel it, it it's still a comedy, but it doesn't feel like it's laced with the irony that I feel like a lot of mockumentaries are, if that makes sense. It, it's not like a Christopher Guest kind of comedy. Not remotely, which is who I tend to think of when I'm thinking of of, of, of your typical mockumentary. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, it disarmed me completely. And so I'm, I'm kind of taken with it. So I, I just kind of want to, like, you know, preach the good news of, hey, everybody, there's this movie out here that's that's incredibly earnest and very smart about what it's doing. And I think also understands its place in the world and its stakes as being very, very small. And both of those being inherently very good things because you can live a very small life, um, one that isn't necessarily recognized by anybody else. And that small life can still have an incredible impact on the people around them. So I'm, I'm thinking especially about the relationship between Marcel and Nana Connie. Um, Nana Connie in particular is like, very unassuming. She's met even fewer people, I think, than Marcel has. And you can tell that she cares about him and about him having a good life even after that she is gone um, in a way that is completely selfless and giving of herself. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. Like, it, it just rang very true to me and in, in some of the relationships that I've had in my own life, too. I mean, incidentally, the the vocal performance for Nana Connie is done by, by Isabella Rossellini, who Crushes I it. think... She crushes it is, is a good way to put it. She, um, the vocal performance is, she, she's got that, that slight lilt, uh, of an accent that, um, kind of, you, you feel like just listening to the voice, uh, you kind of have a picture of Connie already, mm-hmm. even before you kind of get more context about, uh, who she is in relation to Marcel and to the rest of the family. And I think that, that kind of that kind of uh, sensitive vocal performance goes a long way towards 
selling uh, the audience on the on the stakes such as they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of and and maybe that's kind of what I'm thinking of when I when I say that I kind of almost wish that the the plot machinery uh, around maintaining the illusion of the documentary had been jettisoned because I just mm. I really liked Marcel and Connie's dynamic. Dean is fine, but I kind of was I found myself to be I, I found the immersion, I guess, to be broken whenever I was reminded that technically he was supposed to be kind of catching this as it happened. Mm. Um, the while the actual technical aspects of the filmmaking and the framing is all very meticulous and I have no gripes, I think just kind of the the overall conceit of the documentary um, film within the film kind of just it called attention to itself just enough that it kind of broke the spell for me and mm. uh, again kind of distracted me from what I think the the film did best the the business with 60 minutes is is again it's charming mm-hmm. I don't know that I found it all that interesting and maybe that's sort of like a your mileage will vary sort of thing it's it's not a flaw it's just something that I didn't find personally engaging and I kind of found to be business that was beside the point. Yeah, I think for that one, it was something that the characters cared very deeply about. And so I appreciated that the movie allowed those characters to care very deeply about it. And it didn't feel like it was necessarily making fun of them for their enthusiasm about 60 minutes, which I think is something that it would be very easy to do. Um, so maybe there's that level of, of earnestness there for me. Um, I have heard this movie described as kind of twee a little bit by some other critics would would you say that that is an accurate description or it definitely flirts with tweeness at least at least for me i mean you kind of there's a lot of sympathy between the style of this film and the style of wes anderson Mm. in that you know the the artifice and the very self-conscious sort of preciousness i guess is like that's part and parcel of the whole thing and it's very much dependent on the individual as to whether that's going to resonate with you mm-hmm. or whether it's just going to really, really annoy you. <laughs> yeah. And um, for me, I kind of I, I found myself vacillating a little bit. There are moments of this film that I think are very, very well done. Mm-hmm. And then there are moments where I'm just sort of like it's I get that it's cute. It's a little too cute for me. And I, I kind of felt felt my uh, teeth aching a little bit with the sweetness. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's funny because, again, I went into this very much on edge. Like my husband, uh, before I went to see this movie, was like, this looks like this was a movie that was made specifically to be a not Sarah movie. <laughs> um, and I was really hoping that he was wrong. And he was wrong. And I'm grateful for that. Um I think what disarmed me was really the technical aspects more than anything else. And then that earnestness layered on top. Um, And I think just the creativity of how would a one inch tall shell manage to get like oranges from the tree out in the garden. Like, I think all of that disarmed me enough that I was willing to just kind of let the framing device go and just kind of let the movie take me where it would. So I was happy to spend time with these characters. I mean, that in the end, I think is the the measure of the film as a whole is like, do you, do you enjoy being, being in this world with these characters and sort of going on the same journey with Marcel? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I, that I, I don't know that there's a whole lot more to say other than that. Just, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to go on the journey. I kind of wish that I too had been able to get swept up in it in, in the same way. Mm. Um, 
that said, it is it is a very nice, gentle movie. And it's a movie that you can literally take the whole family to. Mm-hmm. And the they'll probably enjoy it. Like it's it's just such a it's a movie that goes down easy and is so pleasant and sometimes that's just exactly what you need. (laughs) You do need a comfort movie on occasion. I am going to like push back a little bit on the niceness, I think. I think this is a kind movie. I don't know that it's necessarily always a nice one because Mm. I do think that there is a little bit of a thread of anger in Marcel's character especially. It's not a lot there. I think it gets excised pretty quickly, but I think it's very crucial um, that Marcel is able to express his irritation with Dean for not being there to help and, and being kind of a, a an observer rather than a member of the community, at least at first. And then I think also that the movie does a very good job that about portraying Marcel as having extremely mixed feelings about the missing community that was taken from him before the movie starts. Um, specifically because it is the mixed feelings of grief and longing and happiness that he was a part of that community. And then also being able to say like, I'm angry that I wasn't able to say a proper goodbye. Um, And I think that that line in and of itself is just so emotionally smart about like all of the different ways that you can feel about the loss of somebody or about the loss of a community um, that I think that was where I was like completely and totally on board with the rest of it was following along with that. Hmm. I can, I can see that. And that's a, definitely a worthwhile distinction to be made that niceness and kindness aren't the same thing Mm -hmm. and um this film i I would agree with you on mouse i think that is it's a kind movie it's not just about being nice so wonderful i stand corrected (laughs) (laughs) listeners that is our review of marcel the shell with shoes on it is in uh theaters starting this weekend Mm -hmm. so if you've had a chance to see it at the time of listening to this episode we'd love to hear your thoughts on it you can email us at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod on the twitters don't go anywhere we're going to be talking about another very gentle animated movie Mm -hmm. the illusionist coming up in a second hey listeners so before we jump into that watchful segment just want to take a minute to remind you all of the patreon Mm -hmm. that helps keep the lights on here at seeing and believing uh now we we don't talk about this every week, but I feel like, you know, every now and then we kind of have to re-up and kind of remind people that it exists and you can get some pretty great perks out of it. Yeah, you can even tell us at the $10 a month level um, which movies to review. Uh, one movie per year. We're not going to let you tell us like every single <laughs> week. <laughs> we, we Come on. Yeah. You, yeah. Let, let's be sane about this. Just a little bit. I don't uh, Sane, good question, especially on my end, <laughs> um, especially on some of the takes I've had on some of these movies. I'm sure. Um, But uh, at $10 a month, you can tell us, pick a movie for us to review. Yeah, there's there's lots of different tiers. You don't have to pledge at the $10 a month. There's $8 a month, which gets you a personalized recommendation list. Mm-hmm. There's $5 a month that helps, uh, like I said, keep the, the lights on here. You can also dedicate an episode to the person of your choice. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of good stuff, like we said. If you're feeling especially spicy, there's a $25 a month level that you can pledge at that lets you even uh, become a guest on the show for, for one episode. So... You know, if you're really going to feel like, you know, really want to invest, then that's a pretty good perk as well. We would appreciate that. Come join us. Yeah. Well, we'll let you uh, 
check out the various tiers for yourself. You can find it over at patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. And for all of our patrons out there who've already pledged, thanks so much. We really appreciate you a lot. All right, listeners, we are going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has never seen before, and then we discuss it. So this week, uh, Kevin was the one who got to pick the movie, and he chose the 2010 animated movie The Illusionist, not to be confused with a certain movie starring Edward Norton, I think, which I have also never (laughs) seen. (laughs) Um, So uh, this week's theme kind of going with that Gentle animation. We're not going to use the word nice here either because I don't think this is a particularly nice movie either. But in that gentle lane, we're going to be talking about a movie that, spoiler alert, I think is really quite lovely. So um, in The Illusionist, magic tricks can't really compete with rock and roll in the 1950s. So a French illusionist finds himself touring Scotland's shabby pubs and run-down restaurants. But things brighten for him when he meets Alice, a girl who believes that his powers are real. Together they travel to Edinburgh for a performance, but he doesn't have the heart to reveal that his feats are merely tricks and risks financial ruin by giving her gifts supplied by his magic. So Kevin, I'm curious to know, um, there's a lot of lovely little tricks and illusions throughout the rest of this movie, but what is the thing um, that is the most magical element for you? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's a couple of, of ways to answer that question, I guess. The the first one is to kind of be a little bit fancy about this and say that I do think it's it's low key miraculous how the central character, this this illusionist, is so crisply realized, um, despite having basically no dialogue um, and being, you know, very emotionally buttoned down. He's not very demonstrative emotionally, and yet by the end of this film. You feel like you you know him and his emotional uh, landscape is crystal clear. Yes. I think it's it's amazing that that's done completely through visual storytelling by Sylvain Chaumet, the director. I think it's just it's just wonderful. Um, the if we're going to go uh, more literally, I think the most magical element in terms of the, the actual magic that we see on screen is uh, the moment where uh, the illusionist, he's uh, staying in a hotel with uh, a bunch of other uh, performers who are down on their luck. Some, you know, there's a, there's a very, very sad clown. Yes. There's a uh, ventriloquist uh, and his dummy. And then there's this uh, trio of, of acrobats who, you know, constantly go around just going with, with, you know, with every step they take. And, there's a scene where uh, you know all all of these characters are kind of having to having to try to make their way in a world that is growing increasingly uninterested in the kind of magic that they have to provide, mm-hmm. and the acrobats get a job painting a billboard. So you know they're like swinging on trapezes and doing and doing backflips to paint the face on this. Uh, I think it's a perfume ad, maybe soap. So bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the illusionist uh, comes onto the scene and he decides he wants to help. And so he, he gets a paint roller with blue paint and the uh, the acrobats go, no, no, her lips are supposed to be red, essentially. And then he takes that blue paint roller and he paints red onto her lips. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just, it's wonderful for just how subtle it is. And 
it, it's I, I think that's kind of in a way the the movie in a nutshell just how unexpected it is in in the effects it has and also just how elegantly it shows these these performers these magicians these illusionists um making the world just a little bit more colorful by their very existence mm-hmm. so yeah um so yeah i like this movie quite a lot as you can probably tell um <laughs> i i'm glad that you gave the spoiler alert that you liked it quite a bit i'm really curious to hear you elaborate more on on what you thought yeah um i was i was taken with just this sheer level of detail and um the care and attention that's taken um even in just like the way the posture of all of the characters as they walk around like the illusionist in particular i think you get a really good sense of this guy just by looking at him and at the way that he holds himself and in the way that he moves he's incredibly stiff when he's not on stage he kind of stands with his arms held sort of behind him with his hands like kind of kind of stiffly almost like a penguin or something hmm. almost like he's he's perpetually surprised and taken aback and isn't really entirely sure what to do it's almost like he's got his fight or flight like instinct sort of activated and then he gets on stage and his hands get really fluid all of a sudden like as he's working magic and it's i think it's also crucial that a lot of the magic tricks that he's doing I wouldn't say that they're nothing special, but there are a lot of things that you're going to see in like close up street magic today. It's going to be a lot of stuff where you can probably if, if you've been around the block a few times, you probably know how he's doing it. And yet he takes pride and joy in his art and in the ability to create the illusion that he's made something out of nothing or he's managed to pull his his rabbit out of a hat. And we got to talk about that rabbit because I have, <laughs> I have opinions about that rabbit. Um I, th- I think it's that he, he takes pride in his work, even though nobody else is willing to assign worth to that anymore. And I think the fact that the movie cares so deeply about him and about that emotional landscape that I was completely on board with him and with the rest of the story. And just, I, I just I loved it. I, I think that it's great how this movie kind of uh, there are, you know, it, it's it's packed with detail, like you said. And I really like uh, specifically the details where Chomet takes care to show the other characters reacting to the illusionist. Mm-hmm. There's a, a great moment where, uh, you know, after uh, uh, a rock band has has finished performing on stage and, and gone on interminable curtain calls, uh, the illusionist walks out onto stage. The the curtain lifts onto an audience of two people, like a grandma and a little boy. Mm-hmm. And as the the illusionist is going through his routine, the little boy is sort of like nudging his his grandma and saying, "Like I know how he's doing this. He's got something up his sleeve, and he's totally unimpressed." And the the but the illusionist, you know, he never wavers. It's it's. It, dignity always dignity that yeah you know that that line from singing in the rain just kept coming to mind just in terms of how no matter how much the illusionist gets kicked around by the world he it's important for him to always focus on his craft Mm -hmm. and i think seeing that commitment is is just very nice to see and i like how when alice comes onto the scene it doesn't change who he is Necessarily, he's still got the same the same standards, but she she complicates it in very interesting and warm hearted ways. And I appreciated how similar to Marcel the Shell is 
sentimental without being mawkish. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that a lot about it as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think it allows its characters to be sentimental in a way. Um, like Alice in particular. I could I could see her being precious about like elements of this movie within the movie um, without even being fully aware of that herself. I mean, she's a, she's a teen. She doesn't know better or she's she's got that level of innocence where she still thinks that there is magic in the world and i appreciate that the illusionist is willing to try to keep up that illusion for as long as possible because he doesn't want to i'm going to use a pro wrestling term here <laughs> he doesn't want to break that kayfabe you know like he, he doesn't want to break the illusion that that magic doesn't exist because for her it does and because he has that level of dignity and dedication to his craft he's going to maintain it for as long as he possibly can even when it gets difficult for him i want to talk a little bit about um what you think of the overall structure of this film just in terms of Mm. the you know the, the illusionist himself he doesn't he he changes somewhat over the course of the film but he you know this isn't the sort of of movie where he goes on this grand emotional odyssey mm-hmm. right and yet Chomet is definitely there is an arc to this film um the place where the illusionist and his art begins is not the place where this movie ends mm-hmm. and i'm really curious to hear what you made of where where that where that arc kind of ends up and how we get from point A to point B, so to speak. It's funny because I was having a hard time putting my finger on it as I was watching it, which is my favorite kind of movie is like, I can't tell where it's going to take me. And I think a lot of the emotional journey is him trying to kind of safeguard Alice's emotions and innocence for just a little bit longer, because I think he understands much better than she does that the world is is a difficult place that isn't going to value him and his art or her and her innocence for any longer than they're going to let it um so i think part of it is him trying to protect her from something that she probably does need protecting from on a certain level and also recognizing that it's well past the time to let go of that and to also let her grow up and to become experienced in the world. And I think that that thread is so subtle because a lot of the story is kind of almost told in these vignettes of here's a show and then we're going to move on to a new location and we're going to meet a few other people and then we're going to get into money troubles. And I think I think the point where I definitely respected this movie like from the get go because the opening prologue scene where uh, the illusionist comes out and starts doing his magic and nobody all re- seems all that impressed by it. Like there's a smattering of applause and not much else. Um, but I think the moment where I really started to respect the movie like on an emotional and like I'm not even sure what level it is, um, intellectual level, I guess, um, is where the movie is willing to show like oh no, this is going to be a hardship for him. And because he is that kind of person who wants to maintain his dignity and probably also Alice's dignity, he's going to try to maintain that illusion for longer than than is necessary. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure if I can pinpoint like a specific moment exactly where that is, but it had to be right around the same point where he buys her a new coat just because she wants it and because she thinks that he can provide it because he is a magician who can turn her old clothing into new clothing. And I just, it, it's a lovely moment in a lovely movie, just like filled with strings of them. And 
yeah, I don't know, just watching him struggle to try to maintain that sense of, of, of dignity and that illusion of he knows what's going on. I think it's also important to note, too, this is a movie with very little dialogue. Mm-hmm. And what little dialogue there is, it's clear he doesn't understand a ton of it because he is French and he is in Scotland. And um, so I, I occasionally, like, he'll consult a book and be like, I, I don't think I understand, like, oh, you're talking about a rabbit. Oh, and then he'll say, like, the French word for that. I don't know. Like, I, I appreciate that the movie is willing to juggle all of those pieces and kind of keep all of them in the air and also keep that strong thread of this is a guy who just wants to maintain that standing even when it's hard for him. I don't know. I just, I love that. I, I think it's an interesting storytelling choice that... You know, even though he is, um, it is a hardship for him to provide her these these wonderful gifts. Um, he, we, we see him kind of um, try to. He, he takes a, a series of jobs that don't have anything to do with his art. He he gets a job at a garage for a little while. Mm-hmm. Then later, he gets a job where he's doing his illusions, but he's doing it in the shop window to like hawk <laughs> perfume. Um, they're, they're obviously things that he's he's not very interested in, but he does it anyway because he he wants to provide uh, good things for for Alice. And although she obviously appreciates uh, it, his gifts and him, she's affectionate toward him. She, you know, they they do have a nice life together. The film doesn't put too fine a point on on that dynamic. She's not wildly appreciative of of it she Mm -hmm. because she thinks that is sort of like oh this is just he he's he is magic and this is easy for him she doesn't make a big deal about because she thinks oh well of course that he can get me some new shoes or of course we can afford to eat at this fancy restaurant she takes him for granted yeah she takes him a little bit for granted and i think that's that's an interesting choice on the movie's part because it it makes sure that this is isn't sort of a very saccharine tale of of an older man kind of becoming a surrogate father to a an angelic waif mm-hmm. it's a it's more complex than that and it, it seems like it's very perceptive about the way that a lot of parent-child relationships are where the children don't really appreciate everything that the parent is doing mm-hmm. until much much later if they ever do mm-hmm. and that's kind of part of being a parent you don't do it because you want the recognition or because you think you deserve uh you know the, the kids like constantly thanking you. you you do it because you care for them and you you want good things for them yeah. and i i think that's something that a lesser movie would maybe neglect and that's something this movie does not <laughs> yeah yeah and it's so it's so smart about like that economic reality i think of, of being stuck as like an artist who has to maintain that day job i mean whom whom among us has not considered <laughs> doing a, a job in advertising i think mm-hmm. in order to support that writing career um i think those little details i think are one of the other things that i found really really magical about this movie so um not just the details of this is what life is going to be like and it's going to be difficult and it's going to be nuanced, but also just like some of the background jokes. Um, I don't know if you saw this or not, but it's something that I feel like I need to draw attention to because it's just so great. So the illusionist and Alice go out to dinner. They can't afford going to a nice meal, so they're going to go to a fish and chip shop instead. And behind their heads as they're eating their meal, um, you can see a whole list of dishes that you can order from this storefront it's basically a hole in the wall and behind them uh there are several jokes one of them is the word salad crossed out there is also salad with egg 
also crossed out. And then there is an entire like menu item, which I wrote down because I loved it so much. Um, it's full. Sc- well, one, there's also full Scottish breakfast battered with the battered in, in parentheses. <laughs> but then there's also lobster thermidor crevette with a Mornay sauce stir- served in provincial manner with shallots and aubergines garnished with truffle pate, brandy and with a fried egg on top and haggis. That's all behind <laughs> the illusionist's head. And like I, I saw it for a second and I actually paused the movie so I could write it down and get it right because I just I love that detail. I love that it's a throwaway detail that not very many people probably are going are going to notice in the moment because there's also an emotional moment going on. But the fact that the filmmakers cared enough about that one particular joke to tell it in a way that felt worthwhile was just something that just filled me with joy. I, I hadn't noticed that that <laughs> menu item. That's pretty great. I'm looking forward to maybe rewatching that scene and and uh, catching that for myself. That that's a good catch in your part. And I think that that's where you see the the DNA of Jacques Tati in this, in this film. So mm. Tati uh, wrote the story that this film's uh, screenplay is based on. And Tati of course is, is famous for having these really dense frames in his, his comedies where there's just a lot going on in all the corners and you can sort of choose to focus on a particular part of the frame to catch the little humorous business that's going on there. Mm-hmm. But then that means that there's all this other humorous business that might pass you by. And that means that, uh, his films can be very rewarding to watch and rewatch, and feels like Shamay's really tapping into that spirit with with this film as well. Absolutely, I think there's actually a Tati movie that does show up at the very end. The Illusionist walks into a movie theater, and I think they're showing Mon Uncle mm-hmm. in there as well. And the Illusionist's name is Tati Chef, which I think is Tati's full name. Um, I love that level of respect and care. And um, I don't know, were, were there any like of those small little details in the corners that stuck out to you this time? I, I mean, uh, I, al- I already mentioned the uh, the reaction of certain audience members uh, in, to to the act as they're watching it unfold. Um, I do really appreciate how <laughs> there's, there's a, a funny scene where um, the illusionist has uh, done his act for what apparently is a, a Scottish lord, he, a, a very, a very drunken but very, you know, big-hearted Scottish lord who kind of commissions the illusionist to come out to his small town and do his act for uh, the local pub. And uh, after that night is over, the lord is driving the illusionist back to the dock so that he can uh, move move along. And they're they're driving down this this narrow country lane um, that comes to a, a fork that where it merges with another small country lane, and then they they merge into a road that continues on to the dock together. And the uh, the illusionist car is in the foreground. Then there's another car that's very far in the background come down this other lane, and you see them converging, and they start honking at each other <laughs> before they're even within you know. 500 feet they're 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 honking all the way and even though they're both honking they both see each other and we as the audience see them sort of slowly converging in this this great long shot they have a crash they have an accident anyway and you hear the crash before you see the crash actually happen Mm -hmm. and i think that's it's just a a great sense a great example of how shumei has a sense for comic timing and also a good sense for uh, how to make a visual punchline as well as just an actual punchline. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's 
I, I love that sequence. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I was thinking about that one, too. And I think also just, like, the little one-off jokes with um, some of the background characters once Alice and um, the illusionist get to Edinburgh as well. So you get the ventriloquist whose dummy looks almost exactly like him. And then you, you kind of get this repeating joke after everybody has gone home and there aren't really very many shows for these characters to kind of perform their art anymore. I think more and more items from more and more of these acts start showing up in in a pawn shop. And you see the ventriloquist's dummy in there, probably the earliest on. And it's marked up at a pretty high price in pounds at first. And then every time you pass that window, the price goes down and it goes down and it goes down. And then I think the last time you see it, it's actually for free, Um, (laughs) which feels a little bit mean towards ventriloquists. But also, to be fair, that dummy is creepy as all get out. I'm glad you brought that up because it is it is kind of a fun little running gag. It's also sad. Mm -hmm. Um the there's there's a great and this is another example of how Chimay had kind of has an instinct for small moments that you know are maybe just a few seconds long but really do so much to to build character and build the world so there's there's a sequence where Alice uh, makes up a pot of soup for uh, the illusionist and she has some leftover so she decides to take it to their neighbors which include the ventriloquist yes. the sad clown who oh, she she literally saves from suicide because she knocks on his door at the right time mm-hmm. but what we see with the ventriloquist is after she delivers the soup and and leaves again he sits down at the table he's sitting you know it's it's a kind of a bare shabby room he's sitting across the table from his ventriloquist dummy who's also seated at the table as if it's going to eat something and uh you know the ventriloquist takes a couple of sips of soup and then he looks up and he notices something and we see him get up walk around the table and like adjust the bow tie on his on his little dummy and kind of like you know straighten him up in his chair a little bit and it's just such it's a moment of such affection mm-hmm. um that it tells you so much about like we, we could just as easily be watching a movie called the ventriloquist yes. where we see this ventriloquist have his own travails and his own dedication to his craft and kind of the sense as we see from the declining price of that dummy in the window mm-hmm. the sense that less and less value is being placed on this man's passion and that is that is sad. And I think that's maybe kind of where this film begins to take us towards the end is that even even Alice by the end, like Alice moves on mm-hmm. and the illusionist is sort of he's still the same. You know, he's still kind of in the same boat that he was at the beginning of the film, except now that he's now he's also lost her mm-hmm. and he's getting fewer gigs than ever. And there's a melancholy there i think that really i think is the the crowning touch for for this film i think it's crucial too that he's the one who's willing to finally tell her that magic isn't real as well like she doesn't discover it for herself he's the one who has to tell her he doesn't tell her directly um which i think fits in with that thread of dignity is that he he doesn't want to have to confront her face to face necessarily with it so instead he's going to write her a note and he's going to leave her flowers and he's going to move on because he knows that she has mentally moved on and emotionally probably also needs to do so at the same time too there is that level of melancholy in a i think the one point where this movie didn't quite work for me and maybe it's because i'm a little bit soft-hearted towards animals is that he also leaves his bunny behind as mm. well um 
And I saw the moment happen and I knew it was going to happen, I think, at that point. And I also, like, didn't want it to happen because it is a very large, round, domesticated bunny that's very ill-tempered and probably isn't going to do very well in the wild. So I, I don't know. Like, that is the one piece where, like, the movie works because it worked on me. But at the same time, it also felt just a little bit flat because it kind of felt a little almost cruel, I think, towards a creature that doesn't really have any say in it at the same time. Yeah, I mean... Any movie um, that takes seriously both the the passage of time and uh, and also takes seriously uh, the passions and and devotions that characters have is at some point going to have to reckon with the reality of of deep loss. Mm. And I think the the moment that you're talking about, which is just it is kind of brutal that he leaves the bunny, goes off without it, and that's been like that that's literally the first relationship we see in the movie is him with the you know pulling that bunny out of the hat that's mm-hmm. the first interaction between him and another character in the entire film and i think that you know it is a gut punch but it also i think is very it's unsparing in the way that it understands that there is eventually going to be a time where he is going to have to like there are things that are going to be left behind and mm-hmm. things that are going to be lost. And that is sad, but it also is true. And I appreciate that the film doesn't pull its punches on that either, mm-hmm. nor that it doesn't, it, it pulls the punches uh, kind of in a, in a very late scene where um, the illusionist has the chance to maybe do a little, do a magic trick for somebody he sees on the train and he declines. Mm-hmm. And that also I think is very telling and very sad. Um, but it's, it's, it's a poignant sad. It's not just a, a, you know, the director being utterly ruthless, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's him really being, I don't even know what the word is necessarily, but like the illusionist is willing to let go of not necessarily the dignity that goes with the work, but willing to let go and sort of roll with the tides that are, Mm. that are moving away from the work, um, yeah, that moment devastated me, I think, more than anything else, really. Yeah, and and I mean, I don't want to give the impression, listeners, that this is a, a devastating movie because it's so, it's just, I, I think one of the reasons I picked it is because I think it's just, it's one of those films that it's so compact. It's 80 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's um, completely, you know, it's ba- almost a silent film. It's dialogue-free. Mm-hmm. And everything about it is just so so pristine and crystal clear that the these moments that are very emotional land but they don't land any harder than the moments they're just very funny or very touching or or just the the character design is wonderful we see you know an opera singer at one point and just the the visual style for her is very vivid it's it's exaggerated in the same sort of way that a caricature is exaggerated Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have the same sort of shallow glibness that caricatures have and i think that's kind of that's good stylization, I guess. It, it exaggerates, but it doesn't distort. Not a single background character that I saw looked like any other background character in this movie. And I think that's how you know you have a really good animated movie on your on your hands, is that even the background characters have that level of love and detail and attention to them. I also laughed out loud multiple times watching this movie, so <laughs> full success. Um, it just also made me really sad at the very end. It, it, laugh, it made you laugh. It made you cry. It moved you. Yes. That's, I, that's a success in my book. 
book as well. I agree. So I'm, I'm really glad. Thanks for uh, watching that. Yeah, thank um, you for recommending it. That is our watch list segment for, for this episode. Now, next week, we are going to be reviewing the new Marvel movie, Thor, Love and Thunder. Mm-hmm. And you get the privilege of picking a watch list film for, for that episode. So what are you going to have for, for me next week? So Thor, Love and Thunder is a, from what, from what I've gathered, a, a colorful take on 80s movies that are both action and um, romance a little bit. So uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and kind of go a little bit galaxy brained in the pairing, but stay with me here. Um, We are going to be watching Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, which is a movie that was made in the 80s that is colorful, has some action, has some romance. And also, it's it's probably a, a fitting time to watch this as well, because um, the great Ray Liotta just passed very recently, and he has an incredible role in this movie. So I am excited to show this one to you. I'm looking forward to seeing that one. The Liotta tributes were you know, rolling in uh, when he unfortunately passed, and somebody posted a clip from Something Wild that I, that I happened across, and I... That movie was not on my radar at all before, and then I saw that clip and I was like, I need to see that movie. So this is uh, very serendipitous in in more ways than one. So I'm looking forward to catching up with something wild. Listeners, if you want to watch along with us, now you know what we're going to be seeing next week. So get on that uh, before next Friday. It's going to be a good one for sure. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to it. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.